The Drum Magazine was a very popular magazine in Ghana, even though the origin was South Africa. And uh, one of the editors of the Drum Magazine in its long span in Ghana was Kamerundodu, a seasoned journalist. But after after Kamerundodu, I think the next person was uh, Kingsley Obing, and he was commissioned by the Drum to do a feature on me as a broadcaster. And that's how I got to know most of the Ghanaians in London. So was that done at the same time that Uncle James uh, took a photo of you? Yes, it was because I was I was making waves on 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 radio. Drum magazine wanted a feature on me, so they they asked Kinslobin to do the the the, the writing and uh, Mr. James Barnard to do the photography. Hello, my name is Abna Sewa, editor of Akadi magazine and the Connecting Communities podcast. And you were just listening to iconic veteran broadcaster Mike Egan, a.k.a. the Magnificent Emperor. Uncle Mike has had a colourful career as a DJ, radio broadcaster and more. He tells us how he was able to pivot from a banking job to becoming one of Ghana's notable broadcasters. He also tells us about his time working for the BBC in London and how he met prolific photographer James Barnard. In the following segment, you'll hear myself and associate editor Kofiamu welcome Uncle Mike to our show. If we could, you know what, I wanted to introduce with the welcome, welcome, welcome to our show, our show, okay. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our show. Bam, 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 bam. Thank you. Uncle Mike, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. So if we go back to the beginning, I believe that you were born in Sekondi, Takrondi. That's, that's right. The only twin city in Africa. And what's interesting, or what we found interesting, was um, that you were homeschooled until you were 10. And then when you went to school, you kept jumping to, through classes because you'd already learned all of that, thanks to your dad? That's true. Which was on a daily basis. Come again. You, you were jumping the, the years on a daily basis. That's right. I was sent to class one in the first day, and I spent maybe half an hour there, and I went to class two. Class two, I was there for one day, then I went to class three for one term, and then I went to standard one and graduated in standard seven. So does that mean you were younger than your peers? Yes, I caught up and ran be- up before them. Okay. And in terms of your interest in broadcasting, I, I'm I'm not sure if that's connected to your dad in terms of your exposure to the radio and the BBC. So could you tell us a bit about how that started in your early years? In my early years, my father was a radio addict. He would he, he would listen to BBC, especially the news, and then he would occasionally tune in to listen to the sports roundup. And his great interest was in cricket, even though he never played cricket himself. But he was so eager to 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 listen to cricket commentary, and uh, he even got a prize of a book on cricket sent to him by the BBC. What year was that? This was in the ooh. Now you caught me flat-footed. <laughs> This was in 45, 46, there, thereabout, I think. Okay. So you said that you listened to the radio. Your dad was a radio addict. So that's where I guess you picked it up from. Yes. And each time he will finish listen, listening to the BBC, I'll go and listen to 
the BBC doing other programs with music content. I used to listen to Geraldo and his orchestra. Uh, Vic, uh, there was another group. Uh, it was a quintet. Okay. I forgot, I've, I've forgotten that now. So what was the genres you were listening to then? Usually ballroom music, jazz music, and big band music. Okay. I listened to groups like uh, Ray, Ray, Ray Ellington and his quintet. W- were these British bands or was it a mix? Yeah, these were American. British bands. Edmund Ross was another band that I used to listen to a lot. He played uh, Latin American music, which was similar to the high life music. So there was some dialogue between Edmund Ross and his orchestra and high life music. Yeah, absolutely. And then I believe that you moved on to work in a bank. That was what your dad had wanted you to do. Yes, my dad wanted me to be a banker right from completing uh, secondary school. So he took me to his bank manager and requested that I I could, could be employed there and they readily gave me a job. What exactly were you doing in the bank? Well, you, you start, let me put it this way. The bank, once you're employed, they take you as a junior officer. You take charge of all the ledgers that come in and go out of the bank. So you, you open the ledgers and distribute them according to where, who should be doing what. And then at the end of the day, you go and collect all the ledgers that are going out and uh, post them to the various branches around the world. Oh, interesting. I believe that um, there was an interview that we'd listened to. And I think the manager at the time, because you you sort of had your side job where you would be doing more of the music side of stuff. So maybe um, DJing, was it? Or you, you had some sort of side hustle, I think. And I think your dad had to call you back to the bank and I think the bank manager realized that your passion was elsewhere but left the job open for you but for you to you know try and do your music develop your music career that's very true uh whilst I was at the bank I was still interested in radio and broadcasting my elder brother Ben Egan Jr was also interested in broadcasting and he was then working for broadcasting as a football commentator and a ceremonial commentator. So there was some link there. And uh, I, I I was also interested in the music aspect of it. So my father would listen to his sports broadcast and leave the radio switched off. And I would go behind him to switch it on and listen to any of the programs that I enjoyed. So it ran in the family then a little bit. Yes, it does. So did your brother also go on to do more broadcasting? Well, he 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 retired as a broadcaster after twenty five years of broadcasting. Was this with so the GBC? Was, it was GBC. Okay. And incidentally, he, he was the first to transatlantic commentary of boxing. I think it was between uh, one of the Ghanaian fighters. Was it Roy Ankara? No, Roy Ankara was, was much, much before his time. W- were you both at the GBC at the same time? Yes, but people didn't know that we were even related. Oh, wow. Because my, my, my character was different from his character. <laughs> so what was your character like? A gentleman character. (laughs) (laughs) A little rowdy and full of determination Mm -hmm. and uh, doesn't like to hear the word no. Yeah, I mean, that comes up a lot based on the um, research that we've done about how you developed your career. So I think one of the notable people is Mr. I think Rabbi Williams. Yes, Leo Rabbi Williams was the head of entertainment department of broadcasting and uh, he used he was a, a producer of a very popular program, Radio Dance Time, live music with live audience and playing and dancing. And uh, he came to Chuck Radity to, to record one of the sessions. 
and he needed somebody to MC. But prior to that, I was listening to another program that Leo Rapid Williams was producing and presenting, The Guitar Club. Mm. Strings and piano and drums and bass only. And there was one of such groups in, in Accra and another in Kumasi. But I was convinced beyond any doubt that the one we had the two best guitarists in Sekendita Karate. In Ghana, I would say, a wild claim I may make. And uh, I, I asked them whether we can get together and set up another guitar club similar to the one in Kumasi and, and Accra yeah. and broadcast. So they agreed and I organized them to have rehearsals for about two and a half months. And when we were ready, I wrote to Mr. Rabbi Williams to come and audition the group and see whether we were ready for broadcast. He came to Takradi to record Radio Dance Time and listened to the group and recorded them right on. Mm -hmm. He was so impressed. And whenever I tell the story, I add this, this, this part of it that even though I was the one who spent all my time and money to rehearse and make the, the, the band possible, everybody was given five guineas, five pounds, five shillings, and I was given nothing. And the pianist, the pian no, the guitarist, one of the guitarists, there were two guitarists, Ricky Johnson and uh, Bebop Agri, better known as Quasi Agri. They were teasing me. Ujafu, adiye And they were teasing me, but I didn't mind. I was just totally satisfied. What was the name of the band? Sekenita Kwadi Guitar Club. And then what happened to them in terms of their success afterwards? Well, it didn't last that long knowing musicians and the way they, they behave. Everybody was wanted to be given loads and loads of money without making the effort to produce anything. But what did that inspire in you afterwards? Because you had managed a band and, you know, they had made, I guess, a single, what we call now a single or an album. No, we didn't do any recording. Okay. The, the recordings that were made were not broadcast, were, were not commercialized, property of GBC. So does that mean no one's heard them again, that music? Yes, yes. The, the music died. Oh. The interesting part of this story is that when Leo came to Takara to record Video Dance Time, we have struck some friendship. And he said to me that his regular MC for the program had gone on trek, had traveled out of Takarati. Would I be willing to MC the program? And I readily jumped up and said, yes, why not? So I went to the beach to rehearse rehearsing with to the wind mm -hmm. this is radio dance i'm coming to you from chakrati we have you on the bandstand the sky rockets and the broadway band now they have walls for you and those of you who are ready to go the european way get up and dance the walls i realized that the mcs usually use words to paint a picture of what was going on on the dance floor in the band and that's what i went to rehearse at, at the beach mm. One thing that I found really interesting about your career is you being in the right place at the right time and being able to have really great mentors that helped you. So Mr. Williams is one of them that you mentioned. But I think even when you went to Britain as well. Yes, yes. When I went to Britain, my, my expectation was that Peter Myers, who literally brought myself and my partner, David Labe, another young man, same age as me, we, we were brought up and trained by Peter Myers, who wasn't a broadcasting person himself, but he was so talented that he turned broadcasting upside down. In what way? In that he had a style that was so attractive to, to, to listen to. And he had a very good voice, mm. radio voice. And he was very creative. And he taught us how to broadcast. So I know that there was a section where initially when you went to practice, because when you came to England and you went 
um, to try and get a job at the BBC. I think initially it was a bit of a challenge. And what I liked was every single day you'd buy the mirror and sit in a corner. And then one day you got spotted and then uh, eventually you went to do some training. But one of the things that was mentioned there was um, your accent or the way that you were initially trying to speak on radio. I think you were told to make it natural. Be yourself. Yes, that was during the training session that uh, we were given. Mr. Peter Fittis, who was the head of training for BBC, was the one in charge. And uh, at the training session, what he did was to give us a script to read. Each one of us, when we were about nine, each one of us went into the cubicle and read that, that particular broadcast. And when it got to my turn, I went in there and tried to put on an accent and deliver. I said, I've just come from heaven. <laughs> and the head of the department asked me to stop broadcasting, you know, stop reading the script and come out of the cubicle. So I did. And he said, young man, you wanted to impress me, but you cannot impress me. I've been in broadcasting for 25 years or so. And what you, what you went there to do wasn't yourself. Go back there and be yourself. So I went back there and I tried to think of what myself could be like. And I did it. And he recorded both sessions. And you could tell the difference between when I was being myself and when I was Shall I say acting or imitating? Yeah, putting on the slangs, yes. as they would say now. But after the training, he said he said that my style of speaking wasn't British English, wasn't American English, it was transatlantic English. Yeah. So tell us how you got into, I don't know, the zone so that you were able to deliver in a way that you felt they would appreciate. Like, how do you prepare yourself before you broadcast? Well, I think... I prepare myself by thinking of the, the various broadcasters who have made impression on me and, and do a mixture of almost everybody else in there. So I was a bit like Peter Myers, a bit like uh, Peter Fittis, a bit like uh, Tony Cox, a bit like everybody that, that I've listened to and, and formed my own style. Were they all British presenters? Yeah, all of them were British. Of course, you were listening to the BBCs. You know how you speak now? Is that what you were channeling at the time? Is this what the um, outcome would have sounded like if we'd heard you then? Uh, I think it's a slightly different from what I used to do. Having been in Ghana all these years, you get swallowed by the Ghanaian expressions and, and speech, speaking. So I, I've been adulterated <laughs> with so Ghanaian English. So what year are we talking about when you came to England? Come again. When you came to England and you were at the BBC, because I believe mm -hmm. you were in England for four years, so was that in the early 60s? Yes, 66 to 1970. I arrived in 66, in May 1966. Came back to Ghana in uh, February 1970. So that was quite an exciting period. I mean, the swinging 60s, 1966, uh, Britain, England won the World Cup the first time ever and, only time. <laughs> and, and only time so far. I mean, what was it like being in London at that time? There were not many Africans then in, in, in England. There were very few and we bonded together most of the time. Everybody knew everybody and we could visit one another without notice. So who did you know who we know now that was in London at that time? Oh, 
James Banner is one of them, the photographer, the legendary yeah. photographer. He was one of them. Kinsley Obin, the author of uh, the feature on, on, in Trump magazine. Mm. Um, people like uh, John Bancole Jones, who was a legal practitioner, mm. but we, we were all freelancers at the BBC. In, in your meeting with Mr. Banner, um, the drum play was based on that. How, how, was, how was that experience? The drum story was uh, a production by Kinsley Obing, who was then doing feature writings for the drum magazine. The drum magazine was a very popular magazine in Ghana, even though the origin was South Africa. And uh, one of the editors of the drum magazine in this long span in Ghana was Cameron Dodu, a seasoned journalist. But after after Tamandut, I think the next person was uh, Kinsley Obing, and he was commissioned by the drum to do a feature on me as a broadcaster. And that's how I got to know most of the Ghanaians in London. So was that done at the same time that Uncle James uh, took a photo of you? Yes, it was because I was I was making waves on 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 radio. Drum magazine wanted a feature on me, so they they asked Kinsley Obing to do the 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 writing, and uh, Mr. James Barnard to do the photography. Okay. So was that the first time you met Uncle James when you when he took photos of you? No, I have met him earlier. Uh, earlier as in that day or earlier in life? In life. Ah, oh, that's I didn't know him. I, I, I didn't know him in Ghana. Oh, okay. It was in London that we met for the first time. Because, mate, yeah. Is, is it because we're meeting in the same circles? Yes, you know, Ghanaian parties, we go and we meet ourselves there. And I think that was, I met him at one of the parties. He was taking photographs. Oh. So maybe this is a good opportunity for us to explain the play to you. So what happened in the play is that the impression we got was that that was the first time that you were meeting in the play. So he came to the BBC Bush House and you started a conversation and the idea was to take photos in the BBC studio. But I think it wasn't conducive for whatever reason. And then he decided to take it outside. And that's why we have the picture that we have. But part Part of what they talked about was almost like the discussion about identity and how to develop Ghana in a way or influence the direction of Ghana. And one of the discussions was, is it necessary to be in Ghana to do it or is it necessary to be home? And with you two, it seemed like you were the one who was going to stay and Uncle James was the one who was going to go back. He felt like to make change, you've got to go back. So that's kind of the really summarised version of the play. So we've always wondered, sorry. I think that's a good storyline, but I don't think that story is, is, is like that. In, as Ghanaians, we, we met several times at different occasions where Ghanaian activities are taking place. But the storyline is good for the public. Mm, okay. So what is your view, though, in, in, given that was the discussion of the play and reflecting on it now, how do you feel? Do, does one need to be back in Ghana to make a difference or can we also make a difference being out in the diaspora? That's a debate that many Ghanaians had whilst in, in, in England. There were people who thought that you should come back home and help build the country. And others say that you can do it without coming back home. So that, that was nothing new. It was a debate that is still, still there. I'm sure in your time, you have also met people who want to come back home and help build change the lifestyle of Ghana.
We've listened to some of the um, interviews and I think we have an idea of why you came back. Again, one of the points that was mentioned in the play was this idea of making sure that your children were raised in a way that was culturally, you know, in line with the way that you were raised. So there's certain things culturally in England that maybe some parents wouldn't want their their children to follow. And according to how the play was, you know, put out, that was one of the reasons. So I don't know if you could expand on if that was a driver for you going back as well yeah um the story is like this as a Ghanaian in in london my idea was to go and broaden my horizon learn to improve my style of broadcasting and come back to ghana but i didn't plan when i was going to come back whether i was going to stay two years or three years it was an open story so one day i went to the laundrette and did the washing of the family and came back home, and that's what that was the practice. That every every Sunday, I do I do this laundrette business, and come back home and do the ironing for the week, so that everybody in the house would have something to wear without wasting too much time in the morning. And then I would be watching football on Sundays. In those days, it was not color television; it was black and white, and not a huge frame like we have now, giant size uh, uh, flat screens and all that. So I came back, switched on the television and started ironing. And about uh, an hour later, my son comes back and switches the whole thing to another channel without even asking, come again. How old was he? He was, uh, I think he was 10 years old. Is this Mike Jr.? Yes, Mike Jr. Wondering what happened next? Listen to part two of this episode and why Uncle Mike decided to return to Ghana the role he played as the MC at the 1971 Soul to Soul Music Festival and what it was like meeting Ike and Tina Turner. Thank you for listening to this episode. To listen to more content like this, visit our monthly Academy Magazine Connecting Communities podcast on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout or wherever you listen to your audio. Follow our news on academymagazine.com and academagazine.co.uk and access exclusive early release content and discounts at ko-fi.com forward slash academagazine The music in this episode is called Life No Day Easy by Chechaku and the Super Pong Stars and is a special remix exclusively for Academagazine Super Pong Stars is a high-octane patchwork of Ghana's indigenous genres, including palm wine music, high life, Afrobeat and Afro-funk. You can find out more about the band on their Instagram, Super Pong Stars. Thank you.